I just think that we have to factor in impeachment as political uncertainty, but we have to also factor it in within the environment of trade uncertainty, Federal Reserve as a tailwind, a fully employed consumer with 3% wage growth. There are kind of some positive offsets during the uncertainty that could, I believe, help stabilize the situation at a minimum. From LPL Financial, welcome to Market Signals. I'm John Lynch. And I'm Ryan Dietrich. Good morning, Ryan. Good morning, John. I guess we can't see each other make faces at each other today, but we'll have to do it. You know, we're still doing it, I guess, nonetheless. Absolutely. We can surreptitiously make <laughs> that, that's right. make uh, faces to one another. I hope you're doing okay. Busy weekend? Yeah, I am doing well, John. Thank you. Yeah, we had a little beach vacation with five other couples to Ocean Isle, North Carolina. We rented the big beach house right there. And Ocean Isle, it was, I've never been there. It was awesome. A really big beach, very laid back. It's not like Myrtle Beach where there's lots of stuff to do. This is, you've got your house, you've got a couple of restaurants, you go to the beach. So, no kids. Um just Emily and I and some other couples. We had fun. It was a good time. Oh, terrific. Good for you guys. Thank you. How about yourself? We went to uh, Appalachian State football game. My wife, son, and his girlfriend, daughter, and her boyfriend. So we had a, a nice long weekend together. So it was a fun time. Although we, we it was a six-hour game because of a two, two, two-and-a-half-hour lightning delay. Did App State win? We did. We did uh, App State won. Yeah, Good. Well, they, it's a little slice of heaven up there. It. They got thirty thousand feet stadium, and uh, yeah, they play some pretty good football there. So it's always a fun time to go up there. Well, excellent. Glad glad they won, and glad everybody was safe. That's great to have everyone together as well. Absolutely. It's always curious, though, right? You have to exit the stadium. It's okay to get hit by lightning in the parking lot, but just not in the stadium, which is always <laughs> a, a curious development. Haven't quite figured that out. <laughs> but nonetheless, we have a lot to talk about. Hopefully uh, no lightning strikes, nothing. But we do have uh, uh, confusion in the repo markets, short-term lending facilities. We've got uh, an impeachment inquiry. We had a, really an interesting development in the last week or two with value closing the ranks on growth over the last couple of weeks. So I think that's something we should highlight and certainly want to talk about uh, the global markets and highlight our weekly market commentary this week. And finally, if we can close it up, uh, we do begin October. We're taping this on Monday the 30th. So by the time most of you listen to this, it'll be October 1st. And we do want to point out that uh, historically a scary month, although September, I believe, is the worst performing month. Correct, Ryan? That's correct, John. On average, at least since 1950, September is the worst month of the year. And again, as we're taping this, we're looking at potentially, you know, maybe somewhere between a 1% to 2% return for the S&P the month of September. So we might have dodged a bullet, but we'll get to it. But October October could be a rough one also, potentially. All righty, good deal. Well, why don't we just go right into it? I think first and foremost, very curious development that you're starting to see this the value trade start to narrow the gap relative to growth what do you want to share about that ryan well that's right john i mean you know just last week for instance you know we had technology down about two percent s p down about one percent for this is for the week uh so the growth was under pressure but under the surface financials they they did it fairly well all things considered and some of the more defensive areas your real estate and your utilities once again which had been strong kind of took uh took command now john what caught my attention i guess was on friday there was talk, a Bloomberg report that said potentially the United States would actually limit the amount of money United States investors can put into China, but also maybe even delist potentially some Chinese companies. And that kind of led to a self-first, ask questions later mentality and some of those growth names that we've seen. And that's, um, you know, maybe, you know, maybe this has a little bit of sticking point, but those are some of the things that caught my eye. What do you think? And this just 
trend continue of value outperforming growth by a little bit? Well, we, we thought that value would outperform growth uh, once we were returning to fiscal leadership, right? When we wrote the return of the business cycle, our market outlook for 2018, we were looking for the drivers. You know, if government has four levers to pull, right, whether it's regulation, taxes, additional spending, or trade, we saw at least three of the four benefit the markets in 2018 up until the fourth quarter. And then clearly the trade situation has outweighed the benefits of the other three. The trade uncertainty has outweighed the benefits of the other three. So that kind of limited the input, if you will, from reduced regulation on financials and technology, the benefits uh, of repatriation and immediate expensing provisions for industrials, materials, and technology even. Uh, So that's kind of slowed down. Now that we've got a return to monetary leadership, right? We're counting on the Federal Reserve, the ECB, the Bank of Japan to carry the load yet again. Uh, It's conceivable that this return to value is purely just a valuation play after the dog days of summer. Uh, because with, if the Fed, we think the Fed's only going to do one more cut this right. year. But if you do see uh, the Bank of Japan persist, the ECB persist, you know, when you're creating liquidity, that tends to be a tailwind for growth. So it'll be very curious to see how it plays out. I would love to be able to tell everybody that we have fiscal leadership and that's going to drive value, but I'm not convinced that's the case. So consequently, we are positioning portfolios to equally weight between growth and value. No, uh, good, good points there, John. So I don't have too much more to add. I know we have multiple things to discuss. So John, you want to move to the next um, segment? Yeah, I think among the many things to be concerned about uh, that investors <laughs> are right. justifiably concerned about is the overnight lending market. You know, it's really not getting headlined. Uh, coverage, but we do think it's important to point out what is happening, but also the, ex- the uh, not extinction, <laughs> the distinction. Uh, Don't say that. <laughs> current environment and uh, 2008 period when the funding problems were back then due to questionable valuation on the underlying value of the underlying collateral of loans. And it's not a collateral thing right now. It's uh, We kind of had a perfect storm with corporate tax payments due, treasury auctions settling, and that led to a cash squeeze. We also had new leadership at the New York Fed on their repo desk. And there's an interesting article in the Wall Street Journal today. It might be more of a, maybe a little too inside baseball. But nonetheless, there are dynamics that we are very, very mindful of from a confidence standpoint. But I want to emphasize, we do not see the impact to money markets like we saw in 2008 again because back then it was the underlying sensitivity if you will to the valuation of the underlying collateral whereas this time again you always got to be careful saying this time right but this time it appears to be uh just liquidity squeeze given uh again corporate tax payments and treasury auctions uh being settled but nonetheless uh, we both have been at this a long time and confidence can be shaken, uh, particularly on a, a short-term basis. So the Fed keeps pumping in, I guess, about $75 billion a night, uh, and they plan on doing that over the next couple of weeks. We think it's under control, but nonetheless, confidence can be shaken quickly, and we're monitoring it. But we want to tell our investors and our advisors that, uh, again, not having the, the credit sensitivity issues that we had 
10, 12 years ago. We think that's an important distinction. Uh, good points there, John. So, you know, what is the repo market? I mean, corporations and financial firms usually tap this market for short-term financing needs. They also use it as a way to pick up some yield on cash. And one thing that's important, I think, to note, the repo market now is much bigger uh, than it was before the 2008 financial crisis. But due to some of the new regulations and capital requirements, uh, there are definitely some differing factors, even though the repo market is obviously much larger. Now, another way that I think you know, I like to explain this, we've talked a lot, John, about the credit markets. If you look at the investment grade corporate spreads or high yield spreads, keeping this very simple. When those spreads blow out, that's kind of the credit market's way of saying, oh boy, trouble could be coming. We saw that before the financial crisis. We saw, saw that late 15, early 16, when we had, you could argue, an industrial recession and an earnings recession. Currently, the credit markets, if you look at investment grade spreads and high yield spreads, are quite calm. Uh, they're quite tight still. So I think we'd see more stress there if you um, truly, if there truly was a bigger monster under the bed. But I just can't ignore, John, I guess, before all these financial crises, we always have one little pocket of credit or debt, and it, it's something that people ignore, whether it be subprime before, money markets, and then it's like, oh boy, this was the first domino. But you, you don't think this is that first domino, right? Is that what you're telling the, the listeners here? Yeah, we, we don't think so, again, because you know, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that, because uh, when you look at investment-grade spreads and high-yield spreads, even with the Saudi thing, I mean, it was only energy that right. blew out after the uh, attack on the Saudi oil fields. Uh, the rest of the high yield space held up pretty well, and energy's since come in a bit. Now that we have uh, a degree of optimism that production can be restored uh, relatively quickly, so yeah, headlines are scary. I never want to underestimate the impact of uh, a short-term threat to confidence and how that could really overwhelm the funding market and certainly the equity market on a near-term basis, on a short-term basis rather. But we don't think that uh, you know, given the signal that we're seeing from investment grade credit spreads as well as high yield credit spreads that's suggesting uh it less ominous than what we experienced 10 12 years ago good points there so we did actually take a deeper dive in this on our blog lplresearch.com last thursday so john we've got about 11 or 12 minutes left so maybe we should move forward but if you want more information on the repo market trust me we're monitoring it we'll write about it but lplresearch.com um, is another place. Now, John, also in the news last week, we had in the um, impeachment inquiry into President Trump. That news, I guess, broke on Tuesday, technically. Markets sold off. Did bounce back on Wednesday on some positive news on trade regarding with Japan. But the thing I think that's important to note when you have impeachment, the last 150 years, only one president ever has been impeached, and that'd be President Clinton in 1998. We did have a potential impeachment with Nixon in 1974, but he actually resigned ahead of that. Now, I think the key thing that I want to point out, John, that I'll turn it over to you, is if you look at the late 90s, uh, six months after the initial impeachment inquiry into President um, Clinton in 98, the S&P was up 42% six months later. Compare that with some very big drops in 73 and 74, the energy crisis and big spike in oil, and the S&P obviously had a m massive, massive bear market in the midst of that. So it's kind of like, is it as simple, John, as it's the economy stupid, the famous uh, Carville quote from the early 19, from 1992, I guess, if the economy's okay, the market can take an impeachment in stride? What, what's your feelings there? Yeah, I think there's a, there's a lot of uncertainty about it. There's a lot of misperception, to your point. You know, we had soaring oil prices, soaring inflation. We were in recession and a bear market during the Nixon dynamic, and during the Clinton dynamic, we were in a uh, you know very very strong bull market. So hard to you know, assign causation, uh, but to your point that 
you know, the market held up relatively well under the Clinton experience, the Nixon experience. He did tap out before uh, everything was official. And then we had, what, 1868, where even you don't have data for, I believe. Um, That's right. Which is really shocking because you have data for just about everything. <laughs> well, uh, so I just think that we have to factor in impeachment as political uncertainty, but we have to also factor it in within the environment of trade uncertainty, Federal Reserve as a tailwind, a fully employed consumer with 3% wage growth. There are kind of some positive offsets during the uncertainty that could, I believe, help stabilize the situation at a minimum. No, that's right. 1868, President Johnson was also impeached by the House, but it's worth noting that no president ever has been convicted and removed from um, office, at least as a president. Um, by the Senate, which would be potentially the next step there. So some interesting things there. We're obviously monitoring it very closely. Again, don't forget, one other thing to point out, I guess, I mentioned how, okay, the S&P is up 42% six month, just six months after um, the October initial steps that were put in play for the impeachment of President Clinton. We had almost a 20% correction right ahead of that. Uh, the the S&P pulled back significantly on long-term capital management. The large hedge fund went under the Russian ruble crisis. So you could argue there's a pretty good pullback into that. And then it was kind of that last gasp, I guess we'll say, for about a year and a half or so on the well, really the tech bubble, I guess what we call it now, looking back. So those are some things we're looking at there. Now, John, maybe we'll go forward. We're, we're, we're running up on the clock here. This week's weekly market commentary. We called it the Global Economy Muddles On. We'll have a link to the weekly market commentary in today's podcast notes. But what do we find, John? What's the global economy looking like there? Yeah, we've uh, covered quite a bit in our last half dozen uh, weekly market commentaries. But I thought we were a little light on the on the global aspect. We did cover negative yield, the curious case of negative yields a few weeks ago, where we suggested that one percent could be the new zero uh, in the next economic crisis. Yet, looking at uh, you know global growth, we broke down uh, the global economy. We broke down the global outlook into three areas, global economic outlook, global interest rate outlook, as well as global profit outlook. And when we look at all three categories, we still are favoring the U.S. and emerging markets overdeveloped. From an economic standpoint, we see the emerging space growing at about a 4.5% clip. Uh, The U.S., you know, growing 2%-ish this year, 1.75%-ish next year. Uh, What we see in Europe, maybe 2% growth this year, lucky to get 1% next year. And then Japan probably will only have, you know, one half of 1% growth over the next 12 months. So we're very concerned about what's happening with the, you know, for Japan, for example, the value-added tax goes into effect tomorrow or today, depending on when, when, folks, when folks are listening to this. So the value-added tax, the consumption tax, we think economic growth was pulled forward last quarter. And you may see a reduction, significant reduction in consumption patterns in Japan over the ensuing three months. So that'll be an interesting adjustment to monitor. Obviously, Brexit, Italian debt weighing on uh, those uncertainties, as well as trade, weakening growth, particularly in the manufacturing sector in Germany, all those things playing a factor in uh, the European economic outlook. So from a global standpoint, the emerging space, again, growing at 4.5%. We think the emerging space has done a really good job kind of embracing the globalization of services, whether it's financial services, healthcare technology, but also what Southeast Asia is doing, taking on new supply chains, 
that may be moving that that are in the process of moving out of China. So looking at four and a half percent growth coming out or so in that pat in that trajectory this year and next. Global growth should be in that call it three to three and a half percent pace over the next eighteen months or so. So we're still relatively confident on global growth, but the the real path for successful economic activity is clarity on trade. Uh, because businesses need to start investing again. And if we get improvement on trade, our 1.75% GDP forecast for 2020 will likely face you know, an upward bias, assuming we get clarity on trade by the first quarter of 2020. So that's the economic standpoint, global growth again, and that 3 3.5% type pace of growth. From an interest rate standpoint, still looking at negative yields throughout much of the developed world, Europe and Japan. Uh, our forecast for next year on, on interest rates is slightly higher from where we are currently, but we don't look for rates to blow out, nor do we look for them to plunge. We think the, uh, the Fed will stop at 150 on the federal funds rate. We think up oh, Ultimately, that'll have an upward bias to the yield curve. Uh, we have a trillion-dollar deficit, uh, budget deficit that we're going to have to fund, and we believe global investors will demand slightly higher rates, uh, taking on that that risk. So, uh, we're looking for a slight steepening of the curve over the next 12 to 18 months. But we have to be very, very mindful of clarity on trade, as well as flows into the dollar, because I think what the Federal Reserve is looking at, as we've discussed many times, Ryan, their mandates officially are jobs and inflation. But the unofficial mandate, we believe, is is the currency, and our dollar can't get too strong relative to other rates. Uh, our rates can't get too high relative to other rates because that differential is too wide. So we need to make sure that uh, you know the blessing and the curse of the budget deficits that should help weaken the dollar. In addition to the Fed going down another another quarter point at least. So rates still remain low, and uh, from a profitability standpoint, handful of percentage points profit growth in the U.S. Over the next 12, 18 months, we do think that the forecast for, remember, we are well below Wall Street consensus for next year. Uh, when we printed our $175 in operating earnings for the S&P for 2020, that was 8 or $9 below Wall Street consensus at the time. Similarly, Jeff Bookbinder pointed out that the 13% forecast growth next year for emerging markets is likely well above reality, and we suspect if growth comes in half that pace, it should be a good enough number given currency flows and what we expect to be a slightly weaker dollar to help boost growth in the emerging space. Yeah, again, the concerns from an interest rate and from an economic standpoint in, the, in Europe and Japan uh, translate into weaker profit growth as well. So why don't I take a breath there, Ryan? Any any insights you care to share globally oh, before we move on? Yeah, to just one quick one. You know, in the show notes, we do have a, the chart that shows the GDP this year and next year with the United States, Eurozone, Japan, and globally all ticking down just slightly. It is interesting, though, the emerging markets have a tick higher in GDP next year versus this year. So that's one pocket of uh, potential strength. But, John, it looks like we do have only a couple of minutes. So I'll, I'll make this uh, quick. It is October, probably like you said, by the time a lot of people listen to this, also by the time a lot of people listen to this, my Bengals might be 0-4 if they lose on Monday Night Football, but we'll see how that goes. Um, This is a famous quote by Mark Twain. I always like to mention this. October, this is one of the the most dangerous months to speculate in stocks. The others are July, January, September, April, November, May, March, June. December, August, and February. So I don't know if Twain really said that, but, you know, historically speaking, John, you know, you've got 1929, we've got 1987, 2008, spectacular drops the month of October. But if you actually even things out and average things out, October usually does pretty well. Um, we all know 87, the S&P was down almost 22%, but that's, so that's a pre-election year where we are right now. 
worth noting the last two times we had a pre-election year was 2011, 2015, S&P up almost 11%, almost 8% in 2015. Also worth pointing out, pretty big drops heading into those years. So October can be scary. It absolutely can be volatile. We'll probably write a blog later this week on lplresearch.com taking a look at the potentially scary month of October. But all in all, usually October gets a lot of bad press, I guess we could say. I don't know why. It's my birthday month. I don't understand why it gets bad press, but it does get some bad press. But really, it seems like it does okay. Although we did get a six, I'm sorry, a 7% drop last year, which kicked off that rough fourth quarter. So we'll be monitoring it closely. But John, what do you think? October, will we survive the month of October? Yes, I am. Uh, <laughs> Good. Go out on a limb and say that we will survive uh, the month of October. Now, uh, will we have volatility in October? Exactly. Yes. That's right. Uh, we typically have, as you as you pointed out, history has shown some of the more outlandish type sell-offs. And it could be the repo market, it could be impeachment, it could be, you know, the, the war in Yemen uh, as they're trying to slow that down. So, you know, there are a lot of things going on, but we're, we're kind of in this weird period now of these next couple of weeks because corporations are in their blackout period, so they can't talk too much. So, an idle mind is the devil's workshop when we're not hearing from companies before earnings season. So that could also add to some near-term volatility. But once again, still looking at pretty good economic growth domestically, certainly relatively strong relative to the developed world. And uh, with the Fed at our backs, we're going to continue to focus on those fundamentals. Perfect. John, I'll just add this, and I'll hand it back to you to bring us home. Had a lot of fun this week, John, so thank you. And thank you all of the listeners. If uh, you like this podcast, please be sure to follow us on Google Play, iTunes, and Spotify. Also, if you really like this podcast, please give us a positive review because the more positive reviews that we get, the more people that get to listen to it. So, John, thank you. Um, Everybody have a good October. And, John, bring us home. Thanks. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, everybody. Hope you all have a great week. We'll look forward to talking to you next week. Well, that's it for this episode. Join us next week when we'll continue to analyze and discuss market signals. Stay connected by following us on Twitter, at LPL, or at LPL Research. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. LPL Market Signals is presented and produced by LPL Financial. I'm John Lynch. And I'm Ryan Dietrich. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide or to construed as providing specific investment advice or recommendations for any individual security. Any economic forecast set forth in this podcast may not develop as predicted, and there can be no guarantee the strategies promoted will be successful. All performance reference is historical and is no guarantee of future results. Investing involves risks, including potential loss of principal. No investment strategy or risk management technique can guarantee return or eliminate risk in all market environments. All information referenced in the podcast is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. This research material was prepared by LPL Financial, LLC. Securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA, and SIPC. To the extent you are receiving investment advice from a separately registered independent investment advisor, please note that LPL Financial is not an affiliate of and makes no representation with respect to such entity. The investment products sold through LPL Financial are not insured deposits and are not FDIC, NCUA insured. These products are not bank credit union obligations and are not endorsed, recommended, or guaranteed by any bank, credit union, or any government agency. The value of this investment may fluctuate. The return on the investment is not guaranteed and loss of principal is possible.